his church was in the middle of a building projects. And they were in the fundraising part of the building project. There were a bunch of things that needed to get done uh, to this building. And while this project was being put forward and funds were being raised, along the side there was conflict among some of the members with each other. And so one of the, probably one of the bigger givers in the church approached my friend the pastor. And he offered him a little extra money in the building fund if the pastor would do what he wanted. He thought that if he made the building fund happen, that my friend would sort of make this member sort of go away. Because they weren't exactly at peace with one another. And my friend responded this way. I'll paraphrase a little bit. He said, I don't know if I should be more offended by them trying to buy me or for them thinking I'm that cheap. This man made the mistake of thinking that his money would talk more than necessarily what the Bible said. Sadly, he was acting like our larger culture, where if you have enough money, you can probably buy it. If you have enough money, you will be treated differently. And this man was living according to the rules of a sinful culture where money buys what you want, and he tried to apply those rules to the church. Instead of standing up for righteousness, instead of standing up for holiness, he wanted to buy his way and buy the pastor. The good news is, my friend said no. <laughs> but sadly, sadly, this is not a new problem to the church. While we see it in the American church, it's not a problem just in the American church. Because today in our story, we're going to meet a man named Simon who tried to buy the power of God. He thought he could play by his culture's rules and buy what he wanted. He thought he could buy God's power. And so today we're going to look at this story of Simon and it's going to help us understand how we need to protect the church from the rules of our culture. That our culture abides by certain rules of fame and power and money and politics. And it is all too easy to allow those to infect the church. Just like we're going to see Simon 
try to use his money to buy the gospel. But the church is not governed just by the rules that we like and the rules that we live in, but it is governed by the law of God and the way of God. And so our big idea, if you're following along in the outline in your, in your bulletin there, the gospel is not attained through money, fame, or power, but by repentance and faith in Jesus. So let's look at our text this morning and see the greater power of the gospel in verses 9 to 13. We'll start by meeting our first character, Simon, in verses 9 to 11. Follow along as I read. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God and is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So this is a part of the story we saw last week where Philip goes into Samaria to preach the gospel. And in Samaria, there's this guy named Simon, and Simon's sort of a big deal. People know him. And Simon was a magician. He practiced magic. He was a pagan. And people thought he was really great. People were amazed by what he did and paid attention to him. The same verb used of Philip in last week's sermon. So they are following, listening to Simon and loving his magic. And guess what else? Simon loves Simon too. Look at verse 9. Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So Simon loves Simon, and the people of Samaria love Simon because of his magic. Now we'll see later that not only was he famous, but he had money, and that this fame brought money and power to him. But what happens when Philip interacts with Simon? Let's look at the description of Philip there in verses 12 to 13. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so Simon is a big deal. He's a famous guy. He's probably a wealthy man. But when Philip comes, people start believing Philip, start following Philip, start paying attention to Philip and not Simon. In fact, in verse 13 we read, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we read that Simon believed Philip and started following Philip and started being amazed by Philip. But we get a brief little view into Simon's heart at the end of verse 13. 
and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And it's a little, little window into Simon's heart that the reason he's following Philip is the miracles. That he thought Philip, probably thought Philip was a great magician like him. Because he did signs and, and, and did amaze the people, but here comes Philip and he's even amazed by what Philip's able to do. Now I'm going to come back to that issue a little later because we're going to keep seeing Simon's real heart come out. But right now he is following Philip. But we're seeing these little cracks in his belief that, that perhaps there's not a genuine faith here. That perhaps he's just there to see cool things happen. And we're going to see this more explicitly in verses 14 to 25 where he tries to buy the gospel. So let's look at verses uh, 14 to 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So word gets back to Jerusalem that Samaritans are believing. Now again, as we talked about uh, two weeks ago, this, this would not have been easy news to hear. This would have needed some confirmation by the Christians in Jerusalem, because again, these are the Samaritans. I mean, it, it, again, as we talked about before, it's almost unbelievable that they would listen to the truth. And so they send Peter and John to say, okay, is this for real? And so they go to confirm, but then in verses 15 to 17, we see that they had not received the Holy Spirit yet, those Samaritans who had believed. Now, I want to take a second to talk about this because this might cause some confusion. The normal pattern throughout Scripture is you, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. The exceptions to that, first of all, are exceptions. But secondly, it happens when there is a great change in history. Again, with the Samaritans coming to Christ, there would be disbelief. And so the reason that it comes through the laying on of the apostles' hands is to show the apostles, the witnesses of Jesus, that this really is for real. We will see this later in Acts 10, where Peter has to go back to the church and sort of testify, yes, Gentiles are actually believing. <laughs> and they have to have a whole congregational meeting because it just blew their minds. <laughs> and that's chapter 15. There's a whole chapter about, wait, those people are believing the gospel? So similarly here, God actively demonstrates to 
two of the original apostles that yes, the Samaritans are now my people. That the Samaritans have believed and have received the Holy Spirit. That yes, the gospel crosses ethnic lines. That your prejudice and your racism is done through the gospel. And so I think that's why here is an exception in Acts chapter 8. Again, to put no doubt in the minds of the believers that yes, God has saved even the Samaritans. Those dirty half-breeds. Remember? This is not some easy thing to understand. There is deep prejudice and God said, these are mine. But when Simon sees this, he sees an opportunity to become more powerful, to grow in fame and to make more money. So look at verses 18 and 19. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon sees this display of power. And when he sees power, when he sees magic happening in his mind, that's what he's thinking. Again, he's a magician. He's coming out of that culture. He goes to his first thing. I know what to do. I'll give them money and buy it from them. That would be a normal thing in his world. If you're a magician and you want more magic, you buy it. You buy incantations and spells to make yourself more powerful. That's why later on, when people burn their books, they're able to say just how much money was burned when they burned their magic books. Because that's how it worked. That was how that culture worked. You want something, you buy it. Again, it's not too different from our world. <laughs> But Simon tries to make the Holy Spirit work that way. Again, he's saying, in my culture, you want something, you buy it. Okay, I want the power of the Holy Spirit, I'll buy it. In some ways, it's natural. But it's completely wrong. <laughs> Look at Peter's response, starting in verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The J.B. Phillips, his paraphrase, reads it this way, But Peter said to him, To hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? Look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter's saying, 
You get that money out of here. That is not how the gospel works. That is not how the church of God works. And you better repent because you are in danger of the judgment of God. Again, verse 20, may your silver perish with you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You are still enslaved in your sin if you think you can buy the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. Just because that's how your life works up to this moment does not mean that's how the Bible works now. The Holy Spirit is not bought, even though in your culture you can buy almost whatever you want. Again, it, it's, it's a little easier to make that transition into our own culture where, where money can pretty much, you can pretty much buy anything for a price. But you know what? You cannot buy forgiveness. You cannot buy the grace of God and the Holy Spirit who indwells you. That's not how it works. And he calls Simon to repent. He calls Simon to leave that life behind. To leave a life where I can just buy what I want because I'm rich and famous. Repent. Leave it behind. Now in verses 24 to 25, there is the question of did, did Simon repent? If you want to talk about this in your small group, I think it would be a great discussion. Let me read verses 24 and 25 and give you some thoughts on that. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So it's not really clear whether or not Simon repented. We can look at his response. We can say, he says to Peter, pray for me to the Lord. We can take that two ways. One, that that is a sign of genuine repentance that he is listening to what Peter says. The other way is that he's still trying to do it his pagan way. That he's trying to go through some special priest to get forgiveness and not just repenting himself. And I think that's actually the more likely one. Again, there's, there's debate about this. But I don't think he really understands that he himself needs to repent. I think he's still living that idolatry life where you confess through some special magic guy and he talks and appeases his God for you. And that's not how the Bible works. Repentance is directly to God himself. The other thing that I think we can say is that the question of repentance is open-ended as a warning to us. Like with the end of the prodigal son where the elder son 
We don't know how he responded to the Father. Sometimes in Scripture, we don't hear the response of the person because it's open-ended to ask us the question, will you repent? And we're not told because the question is open to us, just like the story. And there's a sense of, of a personal warning that says, how will you respond to what Peter has said? Because you don't know really how Simon responded. And there is a call to repentance here, a call to leave, to leave your pagan life that you lived before knowing Jesus. To leave behind how that worked and come under the law of Christ. The other thing that needs to be pointed out is the Bible's insistence on persevering faith. If you uh, end up discussing this with your, either with your family or with your small group, I'd encourage you to look at the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Because in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it says this, The others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Did the initial response of Simon get choked out because of his desire for power? And because he did not persevere in his faith, he demonstrates that it was never a genuine faith in the beginning. And do we, do we not need to repent of the deceitfulness of this world that threatens to choke our faith in Jesus Christ? The tempting call of power, of fame, of money, that threatens to take the place of God in our lives. Let me give you two main areas of application this morning. First one is much shorter than the second one, so just save space for that, okay? (laughs) Number one, you cannot change how the gospel works. There is one way that we are forgiven and saved and given the hope of eternal life and that is through repentance of sin and belief in Jesus. No culture, no country, no political party can change that. That Simon tried to change the rules. He tried to say, I can buy my way. But it doesn't work that way. The only way, and that's the funny thing when you think about this, he tried to buy a free gift. I mean, in a sense, it's sort of stupid, isn't it? Here it is offered freely by the grace of God through repentance and faith, and he says, here, take my money. But how often do we do that? We offer up, like he offered up his money, we offer up our good works. We offer up who we think we are. 
Remember Simon? Simon was loved by the people, but Simon was also loved by Simon. (laughs) It's just as crazy as when Simon offers a couple bucks for the Holy Spirit. We cannot change how the gospel works. You cannot buy forgiveness and eternal life. It is a free gift of grace through faith in Jesus. Secondly, we must protect the church and ourselves from the cultural rules of our society. And I'm going to pick on three major cultural forces I see that that want to infect the church. I'm going to talk about business, government, and fame. First one of the church is not a business. One way that I have seen this inappropriately infect the church is the idea of pastor as CEO. Someone actually just told me a story that that this pastor had gone to a conference and they had said to him, next time you're in your church, you should tell them that you're the CEO. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. That's that's wrong. Um, But I see so many pastors acting like CEO instead of one shepherd among many. That's, what the, that's the rule that God lays down. So the church is not a business because the pastor is not a CEO. The church is not a business in that the church is not customer service. So if something, if I don't like something, I call into customer service and I, you know, then you ask that question, well, can you help me with my problem? And if not, can you give me to your supervisor until... You get up the chain enough, right? We all know, and you push zero right at the beginning to try to get a real person. We all know that. And the trick is, is to be on that phone long enough to wear them down just so they'll get you what you want. But that's not how the church works. Because in a church, we both give and receive. We do receive from the church. We do make our needs known to the community, but we also give for the needs of others. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we make is we make church one way. We make it customer service. When it's both giving and receiving. Thirdly, church is not a business and money cannot buy you what you want. You know, if you're in a business... You know, usually their goal is to make money, though with some, their practices, I don't know if they do want to make money. Um, Who closes on a Tuesday? You know what I mean? But anyway, I digress. But you you can't buy your way through church. But that's, that's just so different from our culture, where if you have enough money, you can find someone to sell it to you. But the church and the gospel is not for sale. Secondly, the church is not a business, but it's also not the government. Praise God, okay? (laughs) But here's where I think this comes in. The church is not the same as my personal politics. I had a friend admit to me that his church has gone through a change where in the beginning... What held them together 
was they're, pol- they're agreeing on political things, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me go a step further in that the church is not the same as American democracy. The majority does not always rule. Because a lot of times, just because there's a lot of people saying something doesn't make it right. And let me just say something practical on that note of a lot of times I think we think we're in the majority (laughs) because we can't imagine people disagreeing with us. (laughs) And there's a certain humility in thinking, you know what, I might not be in the majority. (laughs) And so sometimes when we say we want the majority to rule, we might not be there. And so we need to be careful to be governed in the community of the Bible. Because there's been a lot in history of a lot of people thinking they were right, but when history looks back, sees that a lot of people were wrong. And we can't let popularity be the judge of what is right and what is wrong. And that leads into the third one. The church is not about being famous. We live in a culture that is obsessed with being a celebrity. We live in a culture that is saturated with social media where your goal is to get as many people as you can to watch your video or read your blog or like your status on Facebook. one of the ways I see this infecting the church is you aren't a leader just because you're famous. A lot of times someone who's a celebrity for one reason or another comes to faith and that is a wonderful thing but too soon they are put in a position of leadership that is not appropriate for their faith maturity. Because we're excited about seeing them come to Christ and the potential for outreach there We elevate people too quickly just because they're famous and not using the qualifications that are listed in the Bible. Secondly, also, our our goal is not to be famous. Again, this is is a part of our culture. Your goal is to, you know, get a million likes on YouTube. Your goal is to get a bunch of followers on your Twitter account. You know, I remember a story, I was, I was overhearing this conversation with some kids. They were talking about how many friends they had on Facebook. And I was like, that's, that's awesome, guys. What was really funny was that I had way more than all of them. <laughs> I did tell one of them. The one who won, that one, yeah, it wasn't even close. But it's my own obsession with having all these Facebook friends. (laughs) But it was funny because they were squabbling over something that was completely unimportant. And when I saw it in them, it was a little easier to see. And with a lot of this stuff, it's easier to see in somebody else than it is to see in our own hearts. 
But that's the better question. How am I importing these cultural forces? How am I using them to change the gospel? How am I letting my view of money affect my view of the church? How am I letting my view of my own self-worth and fame affect how I relate within the community of God? These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves individually and as a church. Because Peter didn't just ask the crowd, he asked Simon. He pointed this out to Simon. The call was directly to Simon to repent. And that's the call we need to hear this morning. Because the gospel doesn't come by fame or money or power. We cannot buy the Holy Spirit. It is ridiculous as it sounds. But how often do we live like it does? How often do we, do we inappropriately let these cultural forces affect our view of our relationship with Jesus and the forgiveness he offers? How often do we let our culture dictate how the gospel should work instead of understanding the free grace of God through Jesus Christ that no amount of fame, no amount of power, and no amount of money can buy? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this warning story about Simon. God, that we would never be tempted to change the gospel to our liking, but that we would understand that there is only one way to be saved, and that is by grace through faith in Jesus. And God, that we would each examine our hearts to see where we have allowed culture and not the Bible to form how we understand how the gospel works, how our relationship with other believers works, and how living in community works. God, help us not just to see it in our friends and our neighbors, but help us to see it in ourselves and to repent and to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.